unintended consequences of our food system are due in part to the distance between where food is produced and where it's consumed. Last week, we talked about vertical farming, but can some of those same principles also be applied to animal agriculture? Peter von Wingerden has found one way by building a fully operational dairy that floats in the port of Rotterdam. This farm is an essential element of city design, living, working, recreation, and food production. So we founded a word uh, that's called transformation. The farm should be part of a transformation of cities towards sustainability and circularity. The dairy helps to create a circular economy. The feed comes from local food manufacturing residual streams. The manure is used in the city as fertilizer. And of course, the delicious and nutritious dairy products are made right there on the floating farm. Peter's son, Vincent, is one of the many people inspired by this combination of ag, tech, and sustainability. To be honest, initially, you're always skeptic. Like if somebody says, we're gonna put a farm with cows in, even if you're the son of the founder, you might have some thoughts in your head, like this is really gonna work. But to be honest, there's nobody with as much perseverance as my father. So if somebody can do it, it must be him. So uh, it makes me very proud. The world's first floating farm on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. We really have a fascinating story to explore today about the world's first floating farm. Now, to some of you that may sound far-fetched or maybe even like a gimmick, but I assure you it's anything but. And it can open our minds to new possibilities for what and where a farm can be, even a livestock farm. First, though, I want to take a minute to thank our presenting sponsor this quarter, Merck Animal Health Ventures. Merck Animal Health Ventures is a premier investor in animal ag tech. They invest in companies creating the next generation of animal identification and monitoring technology to advance animal health, as well as new business models to create value from animal data. Merck Animal Health Ventures partners with early-stage technology companies to successfully scale solutions for their customers, which include livestock producers, veterinarians, and pet owners. For more information, especially if you are an entrepreneur with an early-stage company, make sure you check out the Merck Animal Health Ventures website. I'll include a link for that at the very top of our show notes. And also, make sure you stick around to the end of today's episode to hear a short profile of one of their portfolio companies, one you've probably heard of if you've been a longtime listener, Vents. Thank you so much to Merck Animal Health Ventures for continuing to support the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, now to our featured conversation with both Peter and Vincent von Wingerden. Peter has a background in engineering and originally started his company to build large buildings on bodies of water. His experience in New York City in 2013 prompted him to focus full-time on the concept of a floating farm. I'll talk more about that in just a moment, but joining Peter is his son, Vincent, who also happens to work in ag tech with Microsoft. Vincent is a technical architect for data and AI, and ag is one of the sectors that he's working in. So it was really great to have both Peter and Vincent on the interview at the same time to talk about the floating farm but also about agricultural technology and sustainability more broadly. 
I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Peter's remembering where it all began in New York City in 2013, shortly after Hurricane Sandy. The story starts actually in New York City. So we were working over there on a floating housing project shortly after Hurricane Sandy hit the city. And that was a really terrible experience for everybody who lives inside New York City, obviously. And one of the things that scared me most was that there was no food available in the city because the water catched the city and this was about one to two meters high. No transportation was possible. All stores were empty with healthy food. And we were working on a floating project over there. And people said to me, couldn't it be an idea that you design something that is climate adaptive and that can produce something that we are completely depending on that is healthy food. So then we started to think, why not design a farm as an integral part of a city design on the water that is climate adaptive, no matter how much rain falls, no matter how high sea level rises, we can always produce a key essential element of life that is healthy food. So that's when we started to design this crazy idea about a farm on the water. And you said you were working on floating housing at the time. So is your background in engineering or in architecture? No, I'm, I'm an engineer. And I started this company in 2011, thinking about building large buildings on the water. And we looked into many cities. What are your challenges today and in the future? And most of the cities were telling me, we're looking for space. We're looking for urbanization. How do we house the people that move towards the city? How do we expand the city? Do we change more and more valuable earth into concrete? Or do we go into high rise? But how do we create air and space? And uh, how do we deal with the climate change ahead of us? We told them, think out of the box, look differently. 70% of the world is water-based. Why not look into the water side instead of the land side? So we started to design with all kinds of partners, large buildings like hotels, apartments on the water, just to show them that it can be done, really large buildings on the water. So that's how we started. And again, during the project in New York City, we changed this focus completely into farming. And that's what we do today only. So we're only looking into farming. Although I must say that we got a lot of requests now also to integrate it with living and working. So it is an integral part of city design, living, working, recreation, and food production. So this farm is an essential element of city design. So we founded a word uh, that's called transformation. A farm should be part of a transformation of cities towards sustainability and circularity. Okay. And Peter, for you, you had this idea of transformation and farms need to be an integral part of this development. But there's a big gap between that and building a floating farm. So what was kind of step one toward pursuing that goal? And I'm just curious kind of how you got from zero to one with this whole idea. Yeah, it's an interesting question because if you do something that is completely out of the box, if you do something that has never been done before, uh, you find a lot of people on your pathway that said, oh, no, no, no. Not, not over here. Not, it cannot be done. So when we had this idea, we went to the port authorities of our city over here. Rotterdam is one of the largest port authorities in the world. And we said, can we have a little part 
of the water inside the city. And and first reaction was obviously this guy must be completely nuts. So I think it took me one year, one and a half year of discussion. And then they gave me a little part of the port far away from the city, a really industrial raw area. And then we started to say, okay, let's do it over there. But then we had to go to the city authority to have a permit to build our farm. And that was really hilarious because that was at least as difficult as getting a water place. The building permit took us two and a half years. And we started with a very difficult item, how to handle large animals in the city. In our case, how we handle cows. So during the process of requests of the, the permit, someone in the city asked the question, can these cows also become seasick? Because it has never been done. You know? So, And then a journalist wrote down this question. And the next day in our national paper over here, it says seasick cows in the port of Rotterdam. And from that moment on, internationally, all journalists called us from Japan to the U.S., Tell me about this crazy guy. Tell me about this crazy idea. Can we visit it? Can we have a look? And then it took really off. So even before we started to build, we had a media reach of 250 million people in 2018. When we started to build, when we almost opened it in 2019, we had a media reach of 500 million people over here. And we had every week international journalists and for us, it was a confirmation of the idea that many cities, many countries look into the challenge, how do we produce healthy food without all those transportation, the pollution of the, the climate, all the E-numbers in products to maintain a longer shell life. So people are really looking in how can I make a city more sustainable? So this was a confirmation of our idea, but it took us a lot of stress but also a lot of smiles, obviously, to get from zero from an idea to step one. And finally, in 2018, we got the permit. So we had the location and we got the permit and we started to build uh, without any subsidy. So it was purely private money. And that's how it started. And how did you find backers for this? There were five people, five friends, and they said, okay, we put the money down. You build it. And we show to the world that we need to do good to the world. So uh, that's how it started. So the five people put in their money. And then the bank said, okay, in that case, we want to do a little bit as well as a loan. So that's how we financed it. And um, we opened up in May 2019. That was a fantastic moment. Then the calls came in and then the production started. I think Vincent was there as well. So uh, we joined it as a family. We, we celebrated as a family that moment because it was really intense. And, uh, well, that was, was great. So what, what did you think about this, Vincent? I mean, as all this was taking shape, sounds like you were, you know, going through your education and getting started at Microsoft. What did you think of all this? Well, it's amazing if your parents are doing this, right? So uh, I thought it was really cool that uh, that they are doing this and, and really making something transformative and doing something completely different. I think it is really an awesome idea. And the fact that it actually worked, that's even more awesome because, to be honest, initially, you're always skeptic. Uh, like if somebody says, we're going to put a farm with cows in, 
even if you're the son of the founder, you might have some thoughts in your head like, this is really going to work. But to be honest, there's nobody with as much perseverance as uh, my father. So if somebody can do it, it must be him. So uh, it makes me very proud. And give us a snapshot of the farm today. Uh, how many cows and then how many employees does it take to kind of operate the farm? We have uh, 40 cows and we have no permit to extend that. There is a demand for much more for the products, but we have 40 cows over here. So it's a very small size building. And we are now with 50 people, of which 15 are on the payroll and 35 are volunteers. So we are really, really proud on that one as well, because it seems that we are a social project as well. So many people want to help us and become part of a sustainable, doing good project for the city. And it's fantastic to see that we're starting to become a family almost of the volunteers. They are here every day, every morning, every afternoon to help and to build something good for the city. Really social and really valuable to us. So altogether we are with 50 and um, that works very well. And where does the milk go? Is there is there a local processor that it goes to? Yeah, so we process everything ourselves. So it's a three layer building. So on top, the 40 cows run, they produce milk and manure, one layer down. We're processing the milk into consumer products like uh, pasteurized milk, like yogurt, like buttermilk. We're also processing cheese. So we're making our own cheeses. And that ripens below the, the water level. And the milk and all the products we, we produce ourselves goes back to the city. So we work with retailers. We work with uh, very good baristas. Uh, if you want to make a cappuccino in our city, you're using our milk. Uh, we have our own small store here at, at our venue. So everything stays inside Rotterdam. And how big is the facility itself? It's uh, 30 by 30. It's a three-layer building and a footprint of 30 by 30. Meters. So Yeah, right. Meters. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, yeah. it's, it's much smaller than I would have thought for 40 cows and considering you're doing everything. Maybe it's also good to know that the cows are not just on the platform, the 30 by 30 platform. So there's also a part where they can graze freely. So they can basically walk off themselves and graze on the grass and chill there. And then if they want to get milk, they basically walk back up the platform and go into the milk machine and, and then walk back out. So they have all the freedom they want. So it's not just the 30 square meters the platform. They also have their own patch of grass where they can graze. Correct. That's a good addition. So we call them a free range cow. We have the term free range chicken, but we call them a free range cow. They can choose themselves to be either in or out. All right. And why cows? I got to think for me, if I had this idea of a floating farm and feeding people locally, my first thought would probably be like a greenhouse. You know, cows seem a lot more complex. What led you to that? Well, that was not really a strategy behind it. We wanted to start with something really difficult. And that's why we choose the cows. It's a, it's a typically Dutch symbol as well. We know in this country a lot about these animals. We know how to process the milk. There's a huge market for it over here as well. And looking inside, I mean, if we would have started with a floating greenhouse, nobody would have noticed. It, it was not a game changer. 
But this was really, really a game changer for everybody in the world. And now we finished our design for a second farm next door, and that will be a floating greenhouse. So we will do vertical farming next door, also on a spectacular way. And I think that we will have, again, huge media attraction because everybody wanted to know what will be your next building. And they will visit us again because they know it must be something special. It's part of a city. It's part of circularity. It's part of sustainability. Well, again, looking inside, I mean, it was a good choice to start with a very difficult thing. And I can advise nobody to do it. Don't copy us. Ask us to do it for you. (laughs) No, we learned a lot, obviously. So we will implement all improvements in number two and then number three and blah, blah. And so will that that new uh, farm... Will that be like for fodder for the cattle? No, 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 no. It will be um, leafy greens. It will be herbs. It will be microgreens for chefs. Everything goes back to the city again. You know, all the fodder for the cows, maybe we come back to that part later on because that is an essential part of our farm, essential part of circularity. We work with uh, residual streams from the city that goes to the cows. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. So for feed for the cows, how are you sourcing that? What do you mean by residual streams? Well, we cannot call it waste stream, but it is rest streams from the city, like bread from the Turkish bakery, like orange peels, like grass from the football stadium over here, grass from the golf courses, rest products from the food bank. So all these products that comes to us, we measure the protein, the vitamins, the fibers, the fat percentages, we mix it, and then it goes to the cows. And the end product, so the cows produce two products, that is obviously milk, but also manure. And we upgrade the manure to organic fertilizer, and it goes also back to the city, like the dairy goes back to the city. So our footprint is almost zero over here on uh, sustainability. We collect rainwater from the roof. We turn it into drinking water for the cows. So everything is completely happening within the city. And uh, all transportation we do with electrical cars is in the city. So this is really circular. And also the energy which the cars need is by floating solar farms. So next to the to the farm, there's a big floating solar farm, basically, which, uh, yeah, the energy is used by the farm and the cars. So cool. Uh, how much feed are you able to get from the residual streams versus, uh, you know, needing to supplement for nutritional purposes? Well, we measure that during the winter and we're lacking some things that we have in the summer. But during the winter, it is 75% of the feedstock from our cows comes from the city. And in the summer, we will upgrade this to, we think, about 90. And our goal is to be 95 to 100%. So it's not experimental because we exactly know what we're doing, but it's completely new. So it has not done before somewhere else. So for everybody, also for the, for the university and our authorities, it is a really learnful experiment what we're doing over here. Well, yeah, that's actually way more than I would have anticipated was possible because there's no infrastructure for this. You know, as I've looked at, you know, a food, I guess I could call it waste. You're not calling it waste, but like as I look at these residual streams we can call them you have to have a way of you know somehow managing what goes into them and making sure that there's no trash or anything that's going to harm the cows and that it also doesn't develop any sort of like uh, bacteria 
that could be bad. And there was no infrastructure for any of that. So how are you all able to kind of figure that piece out? And um, I think that in itself could be an interesting model for other cities to adopt, whether or not they have a floating farm or not. Correct, correct. So there is a regulation over here that says you can only work with uh, industrial controlled streams. So no household waste. So that's forbidden. And uh, also no kitchen waste. That's also forbidden. So only industrial controlled streams, like a bakery who has leftover of his bread that comes to us. The grass from only professional football stadiums can come to us. So no amateur clubs can, because then there might be cigarettes on there, whatever, because audience of public is on the field. No, only professional teams, we can collect the grass. So we're working with all this, the streams, these are industrial controlled streams from the city that regularly goes to the incinerator. So we are burning proteins, fibers, fat, high value proteins that we burn to the incinerator. And now we upgrade it to proteins again that goes back to the city. What about the manure? Yeah, so we collect the manure. So the urine and the dry matter, we collect it with the robot and the robot dumps it in a machine and there we split it again into dry matter and into urine. The dry matter we turn into organic fertilizer in pellets that goes back to a city, to parks, to balconies. And the urine we process into clean water again that we use as irrigation water for our land. And when our second farm is finished, we use it for irrigation water for the plants. So it's interesting to see that so many cities purchasing artificial fertilizer which is also really bad for the world and for the soil. And we're using organic fertilizer that we make ourselves and that goes back to the city again. So this process is uh, something that we designed ourselves as well and um, essential element for our system. Well, let's talk about some of the technology that kind of makes this possible. You mentioned the robots for the manure management. You know, walk us through some of the, the technology that helps to operate a floating farm. I would almost say totally classified, but uh, it's no, we're, we're a transparent farm. But one of the ideas is to make it really high tech. So that's, that's probably also where Vincent comes in apart. He has been looking into automation of, of farms as well. If you look at the younger generation, we see worldwide that young people are leaving their farms to go to the city. So you should build farms in the city that is also attractive, nicely designed, sexy, uh, high tech, so you can run a farm by your phone and getting data, 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 data. So that means that you have to put a lot of robots in there. So we have a milking robot that is working completely as a standalone. The cows come in and out whenever they like. The robot measures everything. We have a manure robot. We have an automated feed belt, so the fodder is coming in completely automated. It's mixing uh, all stuff from the city, and then it goes to the uh, to the feed belt. That is fully automated. Our dairy processing line is fully automated, and we are now testing the first uh, vegetable production units, vertical farming, also fully automated. So we want to implement a lot of technologies, high technologies, to implement in the farm because it's really attractive to a newer generation. Hey Vincent, if, if maybe you could talk more about that, you know, your work at Microsoft looking at automation on the farm, the types of things you're doing. Yeah, so 
basically the work I've been doing is not on the cow part. So uh, one of the things that I've been working on in the automation part is greenhouses. So basically, the, a little bit of background, the Wageningen University, which is a major university focusing on agriculture, said if we start basically creating foods and greenhouses instead of open farming, then we can become way more efficient. For example, the amount of water you use is way less. So, and also less uh, pesticides and those type of things. So the only thing is there's not a lot of knowledge on how to operate a greenhouse. Paying for a greenhouse is one thing, but then operating is completely different. And so the Netherlands has been operating greenhouses for hundreds of years already. And so basically they said, maybe we can see if AI can operate a greenhouse. And so they created the challenge. And as a team of Microsoft, we entered that challenge. And basically after the first round, we got a greenhouse for three months where we could grow cucumbers. The thing is, we could not operate anything, any parameters of the greenhouse ourselves. So it was like the windows were operated by AI, but the lights, everything was operated by AI. And the funny thing is, it's always the case if you make these decisions, let it be run by the computer instead of, instead of experience, you get really crazy outcomes. So there were five teams which were controlled by AI, and there was one team which was like a control group controlled by people who are, had a lot of experience. And so the first thing is we had to decide how many plants we put in one pot. And so it's very typical to do, I don't know the exact number anymore, but let's say three in one pot. But we chose to do something else. I think it was like two. And so they said, initially, you're completely crazy. This is, we've been doing this for more than 100 years. We have so many experience. Why are you even trying this? This is ridiculous. You will never win. And so our AI model did make some choices. And actually, after three months, it turned out that actually our model created cucumber more efficiently than these, far, uh, these farmers have. So this is one of the things that I've been uh, working on for the, my time when I was at Microsoft. In your work, do you see opportunities for AI to, to kind of help make facilities like this floating farm more efficient? And I'm, I'm curious just to see how you attack problems like that. I thought the greenhouse example was really cool because it was a competition, right? Outside of the competition, how do you think about opportunities to implement AI into, into farming? Yeah, there's basically two things which I think is very interesting. One is not per se AI, it's more based on genomics, which I think will have a huge effect coming both on the plant side, mostly on the plant side, I think, but also on the animal side. But in AI, I think one of the things that we have a problem with in the Western world is the fact that what we already said, and that's also one of the reasons for this competition, which I talked about earlier, is the fact that we do not have enough people in the coming generations who wants to be farmers. Like what my father already said, like people becoming a farmer isn't that sexy anymore. So you need to make sure that you make this an occupation which is still attractive for young people. And so one of the things I think AI can really help is make sure that a lot of the knowledge that you used to, that you're going to lose because the older generation has it in their head. And it doesn't get passed down to younger generations anymore because kids don't want to be farmers anymore. I think AI can really help there. So making sure that a lot of the knowledge that we have is passed down into models, into artificial intelligence models, and being able to help. Because as my father already said, it's not just about creating the most amount of milk, but it's also 
and making it optimal. So making sure the animal's healthy, making sure they're getting the right feed. So one thing, for example, if you get really large herds, could be to have AI models check the vitality of the animals. Are they sick? How are their hooves? How are they moving well? Maybe they're pregnant. Uh, so I think AI can have a huge role in assisting a farmer to getting a more healthy and larger herd and also allowing you to get a larger herd. Already the, one of the major innovations in the last years is the milk robot. But there to grow your herd even larger, I think these new innovations will be needed. And you both have touched on this fact about people not wanting to go into farming and there's just fewer and fewer of them. You know, your 35 volunteers is pretty amazing that there's that many people that want to be involved. What are their motivations? Do they just think it's cool and want to be part of it? Or is there something else? Well, we say often food connects. So we all need to eat every day, three times a day. So food connects. And if you produce it on a very honest way, an organic way, transparent way, it attracts people. So we have in our city people from all kinds of nationalities and they all eat. And now suddenly they can get organic food in the city where it is produced. They can see the farm, they can see the farmer, they can see the animals, they can see the process, they can see everything. And it is allowed in the Netherlands to sell raw milk only from a farm. So you cannot purchase raw milk in a store, but you can only purchase it. So Many people from different countries, from different backgrounds, they purchase our raw milk and they make something like cheese or yogurts themselves. And because we are really interested in how they do it, they come back with their products and they say, do you want to taste it? How we made it back home? I say, yeah, sure. And then we, we start conversation. So people are really connected to what we are doing. That's one thing. The other thing is that animals give some, and especially cows, they give something something healing to people, to some people. So we also have people with a little handicap over here, uh, physical, but also mental. And they really love to be with the cows. Um, so that's the second reason. And the third reason, obviously, is that people want to become part of sustainability, to do something good. And so several reasons why they want to connect to the farm. And suddenly it starts becoming some kind of a family, you know, you, you make friends because you all have the same passion to do something good and that attracts other people again. So it's growing and it's growing and um, it's a new model. It's a social model. And sometimes we say in the past 40, 50 years, the only model we have been learning was the economic model, you know, the me model. It's about me. It's about my phone, my car, my house, my everything. And we, we, we forgot more and more that it's about we. We are together, the world. We are, we are together, you know. So, And this is what we see happening over here. Our little farm is, is becoming a we. We are here responsible for healthy food. Well, everybody wants to be a little part of that. And this combination of this social we thinking together with what Vincent was saying, this high-tech farming that also attracts young people you know, a couple of years ago, when you say you're going to a birthday party somewhere, and you said, hey, I'm a farmer. And then people say, oh, 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 okay, good luck, you know. And now when you say, hey, I'm the farmer of the floating farm, 
then people say, oh, you, you are the farmer. Can you tell me more about this? You know, so becoming part of this, or I'm a volunteer at the floating farm, that starts a story. So you're becoming part of something new, about something that has a really value, really impact to a city. So um, for several reasons, like uh, all these volunteers come to us. Well, we're, we're getting close to the time I asked of you. I know it's much later there than it is here. Anything that we didn't get to that you think is an important part to include in, a, in an episode about this? Well, maybe um, we did not touch too much on, on climate change. I can imagine that. But climate change will influence a lot on this topic. So climate change is partly also due to the pollution that we create ourselves. If we keep on maintaining the system as it has been, it will affect more climate change. So we should reduce transportation by air, by, by water, by trucks. We really should reduce that transportation. And uh, we need to be adaptive to the climate change. So climate change, if sea level will rise two meters, three meters, four meters more, it will affect the arable land. So there will be less and less land to produce food. We need to reduce numbers of pesticides and herbicides. And if we want to do that, we need to be close to the consumers. So we need to find solutions to do it inside cities on a sustainable way. I just wanted to add that one, Tim. It's been great. Well, we'll have to get you guys back on. Just one last question. Do cows get seasick? In theory, they can. They can like human beings as well. But it's rare. But the clue over here was, and that was also a basic requirement to give the permit, the platform is completely stable. All right. What a fun and fascinating conversation with both Peter and Vincent. Thank you so much to both of those guys for taking the time to be on the show. If you'd like to learn more about the Floating Farm Project, all you need to do is Google Floating Farm and you'll find a ton of links all going back to Peter's project there in the Netherlands. Now, before we wrap up today's episode, I've got a special bonus segment for you with Merck Animal Health Ventures portfolio company and former podcast guest, Frank Wooten, the CEO of Vince. You may remember Frank's first appearance on the show about a year ago, and that was uh, episode 246. But in case you need a refresher, Vince's virtual fencing and livestock management system trains cattle to the sound emitted by individual callers to be able to know where they can move without stimulating an electric shock. Frank says this system not only solves a real pain point for producers interested in rotational grazing, it also gives them exactly what they're looking for, more efficiency and more adaptability. Nobody likes putting up fence. We don't find any ranchers that are like, man, I loved putting up that five miles of fencing in that back pasture last year. That was fabulous. Or like, I love it that that drift blew out three miles of fencing last winter because I get to put it back up. So we're, we're inherently taking something that most people are like, this is a pain and taking that away from them. So that's one pain point for them that, that, that they inherently know that they will like about the product. The other thing that people don't necessarily always think about is how much time they spend tracking down where their animals are on large scale ranches. They may spend three hours going to track down where their cattle are in any given day. And so we save them time and efficiency. So there's a lifestyle benefit and an efficiency benefit there, right? 
for them to do the things that they like, which is actually see the animals, interact with the landscape, and then go back to whatever task it is that they urgently need to satisfy that day. I think the monetary side, you know, most people for us that we see right now come to us knowing that they need a solution that's going to be more adaptable, right? The change in how many droughts we're seeing that are once in a hundred year droughts or once in a hundred year rainfall is just increasing at, at a, you know, almost geometric rate. And so the ability to have your farm scale up and scale down without having to put up a massive amount of infrastructure or take down infrastructure is something that people intuitively are starting to want and need a little bit more. And so I think that we provide an interesting intersection there. But fence is not just about a better way to fence animals. The fencing is just the beginning of a precision cattle management platform that can improve things like health, performance, and traceability. We think that we've got a house, right? And the foundation of that house is, is more precise animal control and the ability to have locational data as it relates to where that animal is. The way that we expect to build on top of that foundation is to take different value adds of data for both the on-ranch activities, and that may be looking at fertility for cattle, that may be looking at you know, what bull was on what cow at what point in time, you know, are your animals moving left so we can, we can look at health? And then what can we do with that data off farm? Can we take that traceability data? Can we take the data and say these animals were rotationally grazed in this fashion? And so that enables a carbon credit. Um, and that's the kind of been, been how when we look at the two recent strategic partnerships and investments that, that were made in the company, you know, one of those is from Shell Energy Ventures in the sense that they're looking at, hey, we think nature-based solutions and rotational grazing is going to be a huge source of carbon credits in the future. And you know, with Merck Animal Health, they're looking at it and saying, look, we view traceability as something that the consumer and the supply chain is absolutely going to need. And having the ability to have a data point about how cows are managed in field and how those cattle, their behavioral attributes is going to actually flow all the way through the supply chain and tying that to their RFID tag is something that we're already starting to look at. Since his first appearance about a year ago, Frank says Vince has really been ramping up their commercial efforts. We kind of had put out a couple thousand units in, in the last years of, of devices and you know, have, have battle scars learning what does and doesn't work and, and, and how to manage uh, you know, cattle in a, in a better fashion. We finally are putting out our first commercial version of the product in field this year. So we'll put out about 45,000 units uh, this year and be covering you know, close to 3 million acres of land. So we really feel like we're, we're kind of coming into this commercial scale-up mode. And last fall, we had had some, some discussions with both Merck and Shell, and they ended up leading to them both making a, a strategic investment in the company. And we think that they represent you know, really two new pillars of growth for the company that sit on top of that foundation that I mentioned. And they're pillars that monetize and leverage the data streams that come from the underlying kind of management of cattle. The unintuitive one is obviously Shell, like they have no engagement in, in animal ag tech right now. But if you think about a ranching operation as actually a grass factory and that grass creating roots in the soil and that woody material is actually carbon that they're putting in the soil, then 
it makes a lot of sense in terms of Shell's goals to mitigate some of their 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 existing behaviors and there's some some of their you know needing offsets. Their carbon demand is, is somewhat insatiable, and so them looking at different players in different industries does make sense if you think about it in that way. The Merck Animal Health, I think, is just this natural strategic fit. You know, when I look at them as a partner and as a player in the industry, I feel fortunate to have been able to work with them and have them on our cap table, as well as being working on, on developing a partnership with them in terms of connecting our device to to their animal ID ear tags. We think that whether it's the consumer or whether it's the supply chain, traceability is going to continue to expand and the ability to take data from each point in that animal's life and potentially create more value for the producers and in the supply chain is something that we think is a pretty exciting opportunity. And apparently they do as well. Such an innovative company and a great example of how technology, producer economics, and sustainability really all intertwine. You can also see how these strategic investors play a far deeper role than just providing capital. Learn more about Vents at Vents.io. And thanks so much to Frank for coming back on the show for an update. And we're going to do a couple more of these uh, with Merck Animal Health Ventures portfolio companies in the future. So stay tuned for more of these fun little profiles at the end of some of the episodes. But that's it for today. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.